Welcome to Crop Watch Podcast, a production of Nebraska Extension. Well, good morning and welcome to another edition of Fridays with the Scientist. Today we have Dr. John Carroll with us, former director of the School of Natural Resources at University of Nebraska Lincoln. John, how are you today? Oh, I'm great. Thanks, Eric. It's uh, great to be here. Excellent. So do you feel like you got a lot more free time now that you're no, no longer director? Oh, absolutely. It's uh, my my life for 10 years was basically divided into 10 minute nuggets with lots of other things hanging over my head. And now I actually have time to uh, contemplate and sit, sit and do things and work on manuscripts and uh, lots of other fun things uh, with students. Excellent. So you're teaching a course this semester, right? Correct. Yep. Uh, I, before I set up down as director, I asked one of our faculty to uh, develop a course that of his interest in, uh, especially in ethics and science. And uh, I have an interest in uh, philosophy of science. And so I asked him to put that course together. And of course, once I stepped down as director, he said, oh, John, now you have time to help me co-teach the course. And so I just spent the last uh, six weeks uh, talking about uh, philosophy of science and, and how we do science and why we do science the way we do it and how maybe we can do it better in the future. Is this a graduate only course? Yes, it's graduate students only, mostly targeted at PhD students who think they might want to go into ac academia and so on, because it, it's something to think about. You know, you get, especially as a student, they get so down in the weeds with their research and, and uh, you know, the technical aspects of their uh, their careers, our career development, that, you know, working, um, thinking about uh, why we do science and how we do science is uh, something that's a little, a little step back and, uh, and they can look at it, uh, the whole process a little bit more broadly. And I think it, it, they really have enjoyed it. It's been mostly a discussion sort of course and uh, they they see that it's a little bit more complicated than they probably have envisioned in the way science was presented to them and sort of the way we do it and now they're they they are actually thinking about uh, the why questions on on how we do science no that's outstanding because i think sometimes you have to get out of the weeds and kind of come back to the 5,000, 10,000 10, foot level and figure out like, okay, why are we doing this? Or is this really the best way to do this? Exactly. And, and what's really, we're in a really neat uh, time period right now because, you know, in my demographic, because I'm towards the end of my career, uh, I remember as an undergraduate having to uh, uh, read books on, uh, well, it was actually Kuhn's book on structures of scientific revolutions, which was a it came out in the 60s and it was really, uh, you know, uh, turning science, thinking about the way we do science on its head. And uh, that sort of really drove a lot of us in, in during our early parts of our careers. And of course, you know, people like Popper and some of the other mid 20th century philosophers of science who, who really uh, shaped the way science was done in the latter part of the 20th century, and which is great. But, you know, and so for the latter half of my career, it was mostly, yep, this is where it sort of has played out. And I think right now we're, we're entering another phase where a whole new group of, of, of science philosophers are coming along, big thinkers who are suggesting that not, not necessarily that Popper or Kuhn are wrong, but that we need to think more broadly about how we do our science. And so there's lots of discussions now about uh, issues of how diversity is 
has impacted the way we think about science and maybe influenced the, uh, the way we undertake science and in not necessarily the most encompassing ways or uh, uh, helping us to get to the real answers we're trying to get get to and so on. And it's it's pretty awesome. And I think that uh, the next 10 or 20 years, which of course for our graduate students is uh, uh, their career, uh, I think that hopefully they can they can think a lot more about these new areas of philosophy of science that have really that are really starting to come to come to the forefront. Yeah, very good. So you spent uh, just right about 10 years as director, correct? To the day. I purposely did that <laughs> to the day. I exactly 10 years as director. And I would imagine there's a short list of people on this planet that would want to do a job like that for 10 years. Yeah, it's and it's getting shorter by the day. It's real it's very unfortunate in higher education these days that uh uh, middle middle management jobs, which is really what department heads are. And I think th that deans are starting to fall into that category, even though in a lot of places they're sort of more considered upper management, that it, it's getting more difficult to, to, for, to get folks to, to consider those jobs um, because they do tend to be a little bit thankless. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you do a lot of work, you, you're responsible for a great deal and the returns in, in some ways are, are not like they used to be. Now, the one thing I can say about being director of SNR is that it was the hardest 10 year job of my life, but also the most rewarding, mainly because I've had the opportunity to work with the terrific people in this building uh, that were in here and they, they made it all worth it. And uh, they caused me the most anxiety, but they also, you know, just to see young faculty develop in their careers and, and how we try to create an atmosphere that allows them to do that. And, you know, especially getting to see our students move through their uh, their careers, either as undergraduates or graduate students, and then staying in touch with them after they, they go out into the greater world is it really makes it all worth it. Yeah, I mean, the atmosphere in, in the School of Natural Resources was, was literally one of the reasons I wanted to come back here and uh, do what I'm doing now. And, um, you know, during your time as director, though, you definitely had to navigate through some uh, choppier waters. Um, yeah, probably more than you maybe <laughs> would have been, you know, 10 years even or like say, like if you'd been there like 2003 to 13, those waters yeah. might have been slightly less choppy. Uh, but certainly maybe the I'm sure the most challenging thing you had to deal with during your time was the was COVID. Oh, COVID. COVID was a game changer for universities in general. I mean, that that was a an amazingly difficult time, mm -hmm. uh, but also one, you know, if you want to think positive about it, it actually opened a lot of doors to uh, to potentially positive things going forward. Sure. Um and maybe you've tried to block uh, a lot of things from the spring of 2020 <laughs> out of your memory, but you was take me to, was there a specific point in time, either in February or early March that year, where you realized that not only are we not going to be able to have business as usual going forward, but everything that we've done for my whole career, all this is going to change. And it's going to hit really quick. Uh, it was right about that time. And, and absolutely. And, and one of the things about it was, yeah, it, there was a realization in my mind that the world was going to completely change and the way we do business was going to completely change. Now, and from a, a, being a director and middle management uh, person at that time, 
what what I knew was going to happen is that we were going to see an, an enormous range of responses by individuals to that. And that's mm -hmm. really the key thing here. Yeah, you know, all of the issues relating to, oh, we have to cancel classes, it's going to interfere with research. Those are all mechanistic sorts of things that, yeah, they'll they'll all get fixed eventually, you know, or, or recover eventually, or there'll be solutions uh, that come forward eventually. Uh, and most of those things have happened. And so most folks are are back to, uh, you know, some level, you know, at some level they're teaching and teaching it hasn't changed that much. It, it's changed dramatically and not at all at the same time. Mm -hmm. There's still that relationship between students and faculty, but uh, folks are still able to do the research. Most of them have figured out how to to, to navigate getting around that, that gap and period of time. But what I think was a bigger change for that period of time was the psychological impact on, on folks. And, oh, and that, sure. again, was was one that um, I think that I realized right away I was on a task force and you could, I could just see it, The you know, among all the folks that we were working on trying to come up with solutions to issues that were coming up with the university having to to, to close doors for a while and things like that that uh, some people are quite resilient to those sorts of changes and others, it just, you know, all, all the other issues in their lives just get back to magnified dramatically. And, um, and so it was very, uh, in my mind, that was the most important part of trying to make sure that we were able to navigate through this. Uh, because if you just, if you just leave people behind, uh, it, it was not going to work. It, you know that it, 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 we needed to make sure that um, that we dealt with the, the the problems at hand, but at the same time that we didn't leave um, you know some percentage of our our team, whether they're faculty or staff or students, uh, behind because they they're of their difficulties in coping with all of those changes all at once. Yeah, sure. So at the time I was working for atmospheric environmental research still. And I remember, I mean, I, I, it was apparent to me by early March that things were going to change. I was already a remote employee, but I was working on innovation campus and I was you know, kind of sitting near a virologist. So I was kind of hearing all these like grim updates from him thinking, okay, we are in deep trouble here because we don't have the ability to test and all these sorts yep. of things. But I remember company guidance came down from the company early the week of March 9th, saying that uh, Thursday, March 12th, is going to be a test work from home day for everybody. And it immediately went from a test work from home day to we don't know when we're ever coming back in person. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and that's exactly right. And and part of it is the uncertainty. You know, I, I recall and, you know, some of us have looked at like the Tulane issue with the, the hurricane, you know, when Tulane had got basically the university go basically wiped out by a hurricane, which is devastating and was devastating the university. But one of the things that about that sort of disaster is there was a beginning and an end. And so you had the disaster occur and then you go through all the phases of recovery after that. And, and it was, you know, those are, are kind of the sorts of disasters that I think our disaster planning is much more oriented towards dealing with. So, and that's just a perfect point. It, it brings me to my next point. So you and uh, Bob Wilhelm wrote a paper. Uh, yes. I got published. I forget what uh, manuscript that's in. Uh, but you had a sentence in there that I, I thought was really critical. And I, I, it really made me think. 
So the sentence was, we tend to focus on risk and emergencies as incidents rather than processes. Right. And I can't remember if Bob said that or I said that, but well, maybe I'll take credit for it. <laughs> regardless, well, your, your names are both on. And yeah, I believe you were no, the no, author. he's a good guy. We worked on that very closely together, yes. Um, but do you, you care to elaborate on that a little bit more? Because I think that has implications beyond just how COVID was perceived and how it was handled by universities. Oh, no, absolutely. That And, and, this, and this is, this, that, that is actually one of the points of our article that we wrote on this. And and gets back to that idea of, of mechanisms and people and all of that and, and how we deal with risk management and disasters. And I think this is partly, and, and if you read sort of towards the end of that, I hint really strongly, and it's something that I worked on, uh, that we do have folks who work in the risk management area in our school here, mm-hmm. uh, mainly relating to climate risk and yep. and where the parallels are, are are interesting because again, yeah, okay, you know, climate is tied into things like tornadoes and hurricanes and all that where there are incidents. But if you start thinking about why people have difficulty getting their heads around why we should be planning for climate change in a broader sense, that as a process rather than as an incident, I think that the the, the folks in the climate world have really sort of thought hard about that part of it. But I can also see why it's more difficult to, for the, for everybody else to get their heads around that. Right. I think for the people that work in risk management for climate, I think understand, you know, the processes. I mean, even for just drought, it's a, it's a process. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are different times, you know, there's different periods of time where things look like they're getting better and then things get worse. Right. It's not just a single, one singular incident. But I feel like society's response to everything that's weather oriented, we treat them as incidents. Yeah. And we'd be much, much better off trying to figure out how to holistically treat those as processes. Oh, absolutely. And I think that you, you hit the nail on the head there with drought because drought tends to be a lot more ephemeral in it the way it the, the way it impacts us. It's it's not something, you know, not like a tornado which wipes out some area. It, it and it starts and it ends really in short periods we can get our head around. With there, drought is all about uncertainty. It it yes. happens. It, we we go into it when we have no clue when we're coming out of it, and we don't have any clue as to well, are we going to get going to get teased by well, things are starting to get better. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden, it drops off the table again, right. and you start thinking about some of these epidemiology issues like like COVID, where you know we we had no real understanding of it when it started. And then, and then there's the whole epidemiology side of it and, and the treatment side of it. We didn't, you know, and, and it took a fair amount of time for the, the medical folks to get up and running. But then of course, all these variants started coming along. And so you've, just as you feel like you're getting out of it, all of a sudden, only not, and now there's another wave. I just had my, uh, my next booster last week because I'm getting ready to travel out of the country here for much of uh, October. And I said, you know, at my age, I don't want to take the risk for it. I have lots of immunizations because I've worked in mm-hmm. in rather rough parts of the world disease-wise uh, for most of my career. And so th- this idea of getting immunized uh, for problematic diseases, I'm, I'm all on board. You know, I'm, uh, I've, I think I ended up with four yellow fever shots during my <laughs> lifetime. Luckily, the last one they they said it was a lifetime 
lifetime uh, 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 of, of protection now. So I'm I'm kind of I'm sort of happy happy about not having to get another yeah. yellow fever shot. Oh. But you know, it, to me this this is just a, a normal thing that, that I've had to do working in oh, places where there where there are lots of things that uh, will make you very sick and unhappy and potentially can kill you. Yeah. I think if I had a choice between getting COVID or yellow fever, I probably would choose getting COVID. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. COVID, COVID definitely would be better, but it's still, you know, that's a relative scale too. Oh, absolutely. Still, still, you know, I've had COVID once and I was one of these people who, uh, it was basically 17 days that I was, I was really sick. And even that was even after boosters and things like that. And I think it's a combination of, uh, of lots of other, other issues and who knows all, all the crazy tropical diseases that I've had in my life, uh, over, you know, what impact they've had on my immune system too. But I, I was very sick and I, I thought about it and said, you know what? I'm probably one of those people who would have been had the boosters. much worse if I had not had the immunizations and the boosters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I can't, I would bet that right now that, that it would have been much worse if I hadn't. Sure. So one of the areas where, you know, I, I think we can make improvements in our understanding of, you know, things like uh, drought as it evolves in the subseasonal to seasonal timescales and beyond is with uh, artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I am by no means an expert on artificial intelligence, uh, but having taught a class last semester when ChatGPT just started coming out, I, I find it incumbent upon myself to try to do a little more learning about it. And, you know, I'm relatively new to academic, you know, the academic uh, institution and the environment uh, around academia. And it strikes me that universities have... It's kind of the wild, wild west with the uh, with artificial intelligence. Is that a fair assessment? Oh, that I agree a hundred percent. And and it's again something that has come along, and we don't know how to handle it. And the analogy I like to use with with it, and I'm no expert on AI either. I'm not somebody who's going to ever get involved. And in, I've written lots of code in my life, but I don't. I I actually don't really like doing that. And so not no, that interested. <laughs> but I am interested in tools that help me do my job better. I remember when I was a freshman at the University of Massachusetts, and I took my intro freshman chemistry course. And this was within a year of Texas or a year or two of when Texas Instruments calculators started to become widely available, sort of my junior, senior year of high school. And friends of mine who had a little bit more cash than I did had calculators. And by the time I was a freshman, they were a lot more people were having and had calculators. Those the ones that had like the trigonomic functions on them? No, they had nothing. There was basically addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division, and a square root, which, think about it, that's that's a big jump forward. Uh, but what was interesting is I got into my chemistry class, and it was amazing the commentary that we got. I got from my chemistry professor that sort of paralleled some of the commentary I've heard around universities relating to AI and and uh, students taking advantage of AI capabilities in mm-hmm. classes here now. And, and of course, what my chemistry professor wanted me to use was a slide rule. <laughs> and so luckily I had a parent. My father was quite good at using a slide rule and he basically taught me how to use a slide rule in high school. So I got in there and it was it was not a big deal. But at the same time, I'm, I think back and I, and I almost chuckle about it because 
they were just afraid of this new technology and somehow calculators would completely ruin the educational experience in in uh, chemistry and i think okay you know in my career then further along computing became much more widely available it was pretty available i i started using computers in high school it was uh, a very progressive high school. So I got to pro program in basic while I was in high school back in the seventies, which is early seventies, which is, wasn't that widespread. And again, you saw a lot of folks. I remember working on my master's and I was going to use uh, the, the mini computer at the university and uh, a, a program called script to actually do the word processing for my thesis and the first time I handed my uh, committee some, you know, just some bits and pieces to read, um, of course, back in then, uh, daisy wheel printers were, you know, it was almost like a typewriter or a teletype mm -hmm. machine that were, that, those were expensive to use and hard to get hold of. There was basically one on campus. And so line printers, old fashioned nine pin line printers yeah. were much more available. So I showed them that on um, then the um, my initial drafts on that because I just wanted to show them that this is how I was doing it, and it was one, again one of these things where they were completely against it. They thought that this was terrible, and they said, "Well, we can't even read it because we're going to make us read these these dot matrix printer." <laughs> and I said, "Okay," and, and they said, "Well, this would be unacceptable for a thesis otherwise." And so for our next meeting, I had to go print out sample pages of my thesis on the daisy wheel printer down at computing services and bring those pages back to show them before i could convince them that this was actually going to be the wave of the future and then of course within a year or two the, the original 88 8088 machines were coming out with uh you know microsoft and then all of a sudden mm -hmm. everybody's everybody was really Prior to that, I mean, you would have been expecting to have typed out your dissertation oh, all in typewriter, right? Yeah, they would have. Yeah, you would have had to hire somebody to type it out. And in fact, when I was an undergraduate, uh, my undergraduate senior research project, I basically ended up having I typed it all out on <laughs> on a on, on electric typewriter. At least it wasn't manual, and all the figures I drew by hand. <laughs> and um, yeah, so it was. Uh, yeah, it was a different different era. But you know, leading into the AI question, you know, AI is definitely a game changer. I use chat GPT quite a bit. Uh, I got started early on it because my son does a lot of software development and he started using it a lot. And of course he uses the pay version of it, which is much better than the free one. Oh, sure. And, um, but one of the things he told me early on is he said, you know, I tried it out. I write lots of code and, and a lot of my code is eventually going to have to be looked at by other people who, you know, if I move on in my career, I have, you know, hundreds and thousands of lines of code I've written. And he said, I don't like to write annotation for my code. Um, and then, you know, it's a, that's a boring job for, for programmers. And usually what they do is they shortcut it by writing a little few lines at the beginning saying, oh, what does this module do? And then they might have some key uh, comments throughout just so if somebody follows them, they can figure it out. And, and he's tr tried he basically um, asked or took some lines of his code, put it into ChatGPT and said, please annotate this for me. And what it would do is it would write a paragraph, what this module, and he would do it as chunks of, uh, of code that 
that accomplish something so that, that it makes sense. It's not just sort of random bits of code, but it, in, it would write a paragraph explaining what this actually did. And then it annotated each single line and said, what is this line in plain English doing? And so somebody could read that and say, okay, I understand what this person was trying to accomplish with so, this code. So that's actually, to me, that's enormously helpful for somebody that's a little bit more of a novice is trying to understand a, maybe some semblance of what the language is, what, what it's doing. Yep. And B, if especially if it's anything scientific, like what are your steps? What are you actually doing? What are the units? Yes, exactly. All of those sorts of things. And, and, and so that really got me thinking about what, what, how this can be a real tool. Now, there's down, downsides with all of this. And so, uh, it, but what what's interesting about it is, again, the reaction that I've generally seen in, in much of the university, although that's starting to slowly change, just like it did with calculators from slide rules and computers from calculators and all of that, is that people are going, okay, we're, this is here to stay. It's not going anywhere. How do we incorporate that into our learning experience? How can we get incorporated into our research? All those other different ways. And what are the limitations of this new technology oh, that, that we have to be careful about? So, I mean, it seems to me that, yeah, there are legitimate concerns about it being used for cheating and those sorts of things. Yep. But I think us just saying, well, the students are using this to cheat, so we're going to ban it and they can't use it. It's like, I don't think we're doing them any favors. It was, a, it seems to me that it really could be a very helpful tool for helping them study. Yep. And two, if one of our missions as, as a university are to be sending employable graduates out there, there's going to be lots and lots of fields that where having it either, if, if nothing else, is going to be it could be a leg up, but it may just be that we, you are expected to understand some of this stuff yeah. in the next five years. Yeah. And and the thing that's that's interesting about it all is we are in the wild, wild west era of it. And I remember the whole Apple, Microsoft, wild, wild west of the early 80s and in, in, in a number of other com competitors that fell off the map since then. And so, you know, you think about this. Um, I think I put together for I, I'm involved in um, in a consortium of universities that that for fisheries and wildlife programs I'm the incoming president but one of the things I do is to manage the website and for that I I did some reviews on you know what's available for AI for 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 the general public that students would be able to get access to the faculty being able to get access to and, and so on and and try to annotate you know the sort of different kinds of software and the, the, what their purpose is. And what we're, what the sage we're at is, you know, again, the Wild West, because people can look at the whole AI arena and what's available out there for people. And there's, there are, there's lots of blue water there. There are lots of areas in AI that small groups of people can jump in on and say, this is a niche area in AI that we're going to jump into. You know, something like Chat GPT, everybody talks about that because it was available early and so on. Mm -hmm. Significant limitations. For example, all our scientific journals have paywalls on them. It, it can't use the, those scientific journals. So if I ask a technical question about one of the species that I work on, it'll give me some pretty good overviews. But if I ask it a specific question about uh, biology of that organism that I know is generally only in the scientific literature, it gives me very generic sorts of non uh, answers that that 
yeah, they're they're okay. And if I were, I were just talking to somebody who knew nothing about my species, that would be okay. But if I were talking to somebody at a technical level, it it it, it hits the wall very very quickly because it doesn't have access to to lots of scientific journals. Yeah, a number of journals being behind a paywall is another. Well, that's a, yeah. You can have a whole podcast on that. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah. They could do a whole series on that. But, but, but you know, it's but it is but it is a consideration, and and so they have you know the the important thing to remember here, and why you can, you know, the things you have to do your own homework in terms of understanding what it can do for you, what it can't do for you, and where you have to draw lines about you making decisions about, well, am I just being lazy? Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that I've often used it for is to help me with my writing. I've always, you know, I'm an okay writer, but when in, in people go, well, you just put in some bullet points and it just writes a letter for you. And I was like, well, yeah, you can do that. But if you do that in chat GPT, you get back a letter that looks like a, the computer wrote it for you. Because oh, absolutely. You just, and, but if I write a letter and I just and I just did a review of a, of a faculty member at another university and I wrote the whole document out and then just said, please, please clean up some of my my um, grammar and, and grammar errors in composition. And I set it side by side and I said, oh, these are some nice ways to rephrase what I was trying to say, but I was a little clunky about it. Well, that's no different than me asking one of my colleagues here in SNR, who's a much better writer than I am, to, to look at my writing and do the same sort of thing. I'm still doing the heavy lifting. Um, and then, but basically what I'm doing is I'm substituting ChatGPT for asking one of my colleagues who has no time to work on this anyways, to, to give me some input on maybe cleaning up my grammar and composition a bit. Sure. With regard to limitations, I think that's important. Uh, so I, I remember in class, so I taught a uh, applied climate class last spring, and uh, toward the end of the semester, we were talking about El Nino, and I told a couple of students that actually were actively using ChatGPT, which a large percentage of them claimed they were not. I don't know if they were being completely truthful, but right. I guess there's a lot of them probably were not. Um, but it gave mostly factual information about El Nino, but mm -hmm. it wasn't entirely right. Yep. And I, I felt like it was a teachable moment. It was like, okay, this is... It gives you lots of information, but it's, that's where it's incumbent upon you to do more research to figure out, okay, is this actually legitimately true? Yes. No, and that, that's exactly right. Because, of course, one of the, the things is when you when these programs are gleaning information from everywhere, there's a lot, especially in things like climate, there's a lot of rubbish out there for it to mm -hmm. glean too. And so it can grab uh, bad information just as well as it can grab good information. One of the advantages of the, the scientific literature with the peer review system, well, and we have lots of complaints about the how all of the issues related to that. But the one thing you can say about that filter is it usually just it does filter out most of the garbage. Well, and, and if it doesn't, I, I actually almost think that artificial intelligence might make it easier to spot really bad stuff, rubbish yep. that needs to be retracted. Exactly. You're seeing more and more papers being retracted. Yep, exactly. And um, and again, and, you know, we focus on chat GPT, but I've recently just added, I'm, you know, I have a Google account and I use Google for my search engine all the time. I just add, I, I was just asked by Google if I wanted to add their their um, AI to my account, and which I did. And what I didn't realize when I did that is when I do a Google search now, the, it takes my phrase that I'm searching and actually does a whole AI 
explanation of what it thinks I'm I'm asking about before it gives me all the links to all the different websites around the the internet to uh, for what I have to be looking for. And and I thought it would, that was sort of an interesting different spin on it. And again, they have a different algorithm, probably overlaps with some of the others, but it also is pulling from different bits of information too. And so you have, you know, we have all these competing AIs that are not necessarily, they may be all overlapping on the information they can get, but they're all also different. And then you have those ones that are more targeted. So I, I just, I was just trying to do some artwork, which I'm, I have no art capabilities at any way at all. So I went to an AI program and said, well, can you, I, I'm looking for a silhouette of one of these species that I work on because I want to make it, I, I want to use that art in something that I, that I do, uh, that, I, that I'm putting together. And it is just a silhouette, like a silhouette of a greater prairie chicken or something like that. And so I was trying to get it to create something in this art AI program. And so I put in all kinds of keywords and what it came back with was something that looked like you had hybridized a chicken with a grouse, with a quail, with, with a pheasant and with a peacock. And it was this crazy generic looking <laughs> galliform. And it just was obviously very confused and I could not, but and no matter how I tried to mix up the way I asked it to do things, it just could not comprehend what I was getting at. And as soon as you, you know, of course, as soon as it sees galliformes, it picks up the fact that galliformes are chickens, chickens are galliformes. And so all of a sudden everything has at least some basis in domestic chickens. And so, I, yeah. I at least now know what galliformes means. I, oh, right. for a long time, I saw your Instagram and Colin's like, well, I'm guessing it has something to do with uh, with birds, but it I wasn't is. entirely sure. It's the uh, it's the order of uh, of all the wild relatives of chickens, and, and you know it's a global group. All the grouse and quail and pheasants and all of that, or and turkeys are all galliformes. Yeah. So, in academic institutions, particularly with faculty, do you think the biggest concern with AI is is it just literally just the fear of the unknown, or like do you think there's like really legitimate fears about cheating and ethics and which some of that I'm, I'm sure is very legitimate, but like, what, yeah. what do you think is, a, is the biggest I think, concern? Yeah. I think the, the, the biggest concern was something new and different and, and faculty didn't know how to use it and didn't really understand it. And that's a natural human reaction. <laughs> I think there are legitimate concerns about, uh, about people, uh, uh, especially in writing, it just, you know, not yeah, you make all kinds of arguments about what where you are at the level of cheating or not cheating because it, it's never black and white in writing sorts of things. I mean, even things like plagiarism are really, I know when I see it, but it's very, if somebody asked me to write a computer algorithm to point out what cheating is, you know, or plagiarism is, I would have a difficulty doing that because, you know, how many different ways can you write a sentence about something that is actually really well known in a fairly narrow discipline? Uh, you can you can rejig the sentences a lot of different ways, but there, you know, when there's all when there's been a lot of sentences written about it, you probably could pick that sentence out from somewhere else 
and you might not have ever read it, but it'll just by random chance it's matched up. And so, yeah, there there's some of some of those sorts of things. I think that I over time, and I'm predicting this will take several years. What we'll see is more and more incorporation of AI technologies in classes, uh, in the on the teaching side, basically recognizing that it's another tool. It's not. It's going to you know, some of our older tools may go away. I think there are people still know how to use slide rules, uh, but, you know, I don't think there's probably very many. And, you know, and it's at some point that AI will will change the dy- our, our dynamics. And I'm teaching a population biology class for seniors in the spring, and it is uh, AI is going to be incorporated into that class as a formal part of the class. Um, when we're doing problems on population biology, where we're uh, we're doing population projections uh, based on life history characteristics, or we're doing some matrix algebra, um, some of those things you can do in in um, Excel. You know, I do a lot of matrix algebra examples in Excel, so that students see it fairly transparently and understand what the matrix mm-hmm. algebra is doing. So it's not just like a black box. If you if you use stat software. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll probably have them say, okay, put your example into chat GPT, see what you get from, you know, see how it evaluates the, the mathematical example that I've asked you to, to analyze and compare that to how we did, did it with, um, Excel in class and in what we concluded from our, our results. And then, you know, maybe in ChatGPT, ask ChatGPT to write a paragraph uh, of conclusions on what what that population biology uh, uh, example actually means for for whatever species we're working on, and 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 and, and incorporate it as a formal learning experience. Sure, and well, and I think was great about the approach you're taking there is either learning how to use you know ChatGPT and other other these other algorithms uh, that are artificial intelligence space, but there's still very much the learning and thinking component of it. That's the having key. to work through it. Yep. So you're using the AI as a foundation, but it's, it's, it's also kind of a supplement there. You're not substituting, you're not eliminating the thinking aspect. And I, I think maybe my concern is that, you know, you have some people that will just be lazy and just use it without thinking, but People have been lazy for forever, yep. and, and it's just another way for people to be lazy. Exactly, and and if and there are ways to minimize that sort of mm-hmm. thing because you, you know, you have people when they turn in their their um, their results and in their and all the documentation, um, it's pretty easy to tease apart what they've put together. I mean, if you if we're doing a matrix algebra example on uh, life history strategies of some species, you can say, well, do this in, you have to do this in Excel, in chat GPT. Well, in Excel, you can just say, well, when you turn in your Excel, it has to show, I do a screen capture of your, your Excel sheet sure. and then do a screen capture of the cells in um, in reveal uh, equation mode, and so you can see that they've actually put the equations in all those cells. Sure, that they just didn't just copy and paste numbers into those cells. Yeah, it demonstrates yeah. understanding of the actual concept. Yep, and in fact, in, in when you're using Excel for a lot of, of these sorts of things, where you're teaching math concepts to to students or applied math concepts, 
one of the things you have to be careful about is students basically getting a bunch of numbers and doing things like just putting those numbers, including, you know, all the sums down at the bottoms of columns, just copying and pasting those numbers in there without actually having the Excel spreadsheet do the calculations for you. And if you do a screen capture, you, could, you couldn't tell that that was actually done by the student or they just pasted in a bunch of uh, numbers from, from somewhere else. They made me think of like, you know, units are very important. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. I still remember I took microcline with uh, Betty Walter Shea and Shashi Verma. And I just remember how much, especially Shashi, harped on units. Oh, yeah. And it's like, you know, I've, I've told other students or other people this, like, if you work through a problem and your units don't match, you didn't do it right. Right. So it, it, that's where, and at least if, if you really are very careful and diligent about following through with your units, you can maybe go go back and see where you messed up. Right. You know, you could make an algebra or somewhere else, yeah. but uh, if your units aren't right, you didn't do it right. Yeah, exactly. And and so in the long run, you know, we are at one of those threshold periods of time. I think that we're still right at the beginning of the whole AI availability. I'm sure there are AI programs out there available that are proprietary for specific uh, uh, industries mm -hmm. that we don't even know about that they're using regularly and they may be at a much higher level than what we have available uh, to us, sort of more general and widely available. But, you know, even among the, those that are more widely available, I think that the people who develop them obviously are, you know, they're, they're pretty sharp people. Sometimes we disagree with their, their views of the world, but at, at the same time, they're going to figure out when who is going to uh, or, or what sorts of parts of their AI work and what doesn't work and mm -hmm. what what is useful or what's not useful. Yeah. Well, and I, I think for no other reason, we have enormous, increasingly large and larger and larger data sets yes. in all fields. Yeah, uh, my client, you know, climate field is obviously probably a prime example. Exactly. Uh, but you know, other fields also just data sets are getting larger and larger. Yep. There's all all sorts of things that you can glean from those data, and um, you know, I, I think it's increasingly important to just acknowledge that we have to be very good at, at just basic data science. Yes. Uh, in academia and yep. you know everywhere, and I think I was uh, talking to Larkin about uh, you know position for two state climatologists. It's like I think it's important that this new candidate have some background in data science and machine learning. Yeah. Not that they'd be an expert in it, but I, I think it's, you know, I think having that understanding is, you know, important. And I think trying to uh, run a state climate office uh, without yeah. having any data science experts or mm -hmm. background is like, you know, it's like trying to, um, you know, run a uh, modern football without having uh, an offensive coordinator. It's not going to right. work. Yes, no, it's exactly right. And um, and of course, big data is is a whole area in itself. And one, interestingly enough, when you look at what are some of the key philosophy of science issues that are that are going to be the next mm -hmm. that really impact the next generation of scientists, uh, AI and big data are both right at the at the top of the list, along with some of these other issues that I mentioned earlier. And because they do flip the way we think about big problems on, on their heads, because, you know, historically in, in my career would have been, you know, we were very influenced by Sir Ronald Fisher, who basically helped develop modern statistical analysis and samplers. 
Yeah, uh, yeah. The F. Anytime you see F in statistics, mm-hmm. it's it's Sir Ronald Fisher, um, and you know, analysis of variance and and all of that, and and this idea of having a hypothesis and testing that hypothesis, and of course, what ends up because. It, it, that becomes very interesting with that is it becomes exponentially more difficult to do those sorts of things, the more complicated the system you're working in. Mm-hmm. And it tends to force people into this sort of reductionist approach towards their research, a one old one variable rule. Well, you might change two things. Well, you start throwing AI and big data out there and you go, oh, wait a minute. All of a sudden, you've got hundreds of variables and maybe millions of lines of data. And so, um, you know, there how do you come up with with hypotheses when this is this is the mass of uh, information that that's sitting there that you you need to to make heads or tails of? And so they're you know in the philosophy of science world they're they're now looking at this idea these ideas of um, you know maybe flipping that way you do hypothesis testing on its head where maybe the the data itself generates lots of hypotheses and so on. And, in you know, in the, in their, these sorts of questions came up when people started doing a lot more Bayes analysis and using uh, information you gleaned earlier to help inform uh, how you, uh, how you uh, adjust your analyses going forward. And so uh, it becomes a lot more complicated, but then you think about it, while it does make a lot more sense in system sort of analyses, in a reductionist approach, okay, how many pounds of nitrogen we put on a field, pretty straightforward sorts of things. It is, yeah, it's obviously mm-hmm. more complicated than that, but there's some pretty straightforward answers with that very reductionist approach. And you use more nitrogen, you often get much, a lot more yields. Now it can be complicated by water and everything else, but but if you start looking at, okay, how are we thinking about this whole ecosystem? And, you know, where you having have lots of, or climate, where you have dozens or hundreds of variables, um, is that necessarily the appropriate way to do things? Well, first of all, you can't manipulate the climate very easily anyways to do your experiment, but you know, you, you sort of get my point. That, mm-hmm. it, that maybe that holistic way of viewing it allows you to, to, to nuance how making predictions about what might happen and uh, going forward and, and modeling what might go ahead, happen going forward. So pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, very cool. So is this a two-day week type course, one day a week? We meet two twice a week. And what I've been doing, what I did for my part on the philosophy of science was that I um I would give them a lot of background. We did we covered some historical aspects of it because philosophy of science has been around for thousands of years. And so you want to see where where you came from. And but I really focused uh, I, I spent most of the time our time on sort of the 19th to 20th centuries, and then the very last part of it, okay, where where are we heading? And, you know, this is, I'm at the end of my career. These are things that are not going to impact me in my career, but for these, you know, 20-something PhD students, this is, these are things that, you know, may substantially influence how they think about questions going forward in their careers. Yep. It's always good to think and um, sometimes value how you're thinking is very yes. important because that Absolutely. can make a big difference in how you approach your career. And um, you could get to a situation like I did a year and a half ago where it's like, I kind of make a bit of a career shift. Yep, exactly. Um, yep. And um, and all of these things, if you, you 
if you keep learning uh, um, some different ways of thinking about things, then it and it helps with all, all aspects of uh, muddling through life. Excellent. Well, we're probably about out of time, but I really appreciate you coming on today, John, and you have a good rest of your day. Great being here. Thank you.